Yeah, hearing that sound is absolutely horrifying. Code blues do happen. Thankfully, they're rare in labor and delivery, but when they do occur, they're pretty catastrophic. Amniotic fluid embolism is a rare but often fatal OB condition characterized by sudden cardiovascular collapse, altered mental status, and DIC. Even though this was first described by Meyer in 1941, it wasn't until 1926 when this whole issue of sudden maternal collapse peripartum was attributed to amniotic fluid embolization. We're going to talk about this in this episode. And even though this was the subject of a past podcast, because we covered this back in 2009 on August the 24th, but we're going to go more into detail than we did back then because we know more. Specifically, we're going to talk about AOK. Yep, atropine on Dancitrone and Ketorolac, the AOK protocol, and how even that has changed because now that's being called AOK tea with the use of transexamic acid also thrown into that mix. So does this make sense? Is this a valid thing? Is there evidence to support the AOK and the AOKT protocol? We're going to investigate that in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. All right, everyone. So right off the bat, if you wanted that reference date, we covered amniotic fluid emboli uh, like four years ago, August the 24th, 2019. And in that episode, we highlighted the SMFM uh, bulletin, the the console series that we're also going to talk about here as well, just briefly, because that's not the focus of what I wanted to cover. I want to focus specifically on AOK or AOKT, okay? But back in 2019, we did cover the SMFM clinical consensus guideline number nine. And yes, we're just going to pull out just a couple of highlights from that, but I really want to focus on the management. But if we just jump into management without really going through some of the warning signs of AFE, then we're going to miss the the entire purpose here because the purpose is to improve patient care and to keep us on our toes and alert because this thing like just pops up and it's like, hi, I'm here. And it's terrifying and catastrophic. I mean, it's not like a lead in like two, two hours later, like, is it AFE? I don't know. And three hours later, it could be AFE. That's not how this works. It's like, oh my gosh, she's going down the tubes now. It is catastrophic and sudden. We're also going to talk about uh, Stephen uh, Clark's, the, the Clark Criteria. That was uh, published in 2016 in the Gray Journal. And that is still pretty much the the main diagnostic uh, a checklist for AFE. Now, yes, it's true. The majority of the time, some this is a diagnosis of exclusion because you're chasing down you know other red herrings, and then you're like, oh man, could this have been an AFE? So here's the first clinical pearl: in any patient with quick, rapid deterioration of hypoxia, altered mental status, and definitely cardiovascular collapse, think AFE and jump on that quickly because DIC is next to follow. 
Okay, this and this moves super fast. And yes, this is this is pretty darn scary. And if you notice what I just said, that we're gonna talk about the Stephen Clark diagnostic criteria from 2016. Guys, 2016. So how long has AFB been out? <laughs> I mean, it was first described by Meyer in 1926. And, and there it wasn't clear, like, hey, this lady just kind of collapsed peripartum. And Meyer described um, the presence of fetal debris in pulmonary blood vessels. And the mother had just died suddenly, just boom, collapsed peripartum. So he's like, I don't know. Look, there's fetal debris in the pulmonary vasculature. I, I guess it's a kind of like an emboli. Uh, but it really wasn't called AFE until 1926 when two authors uh, kind of put this information together. Uh, and that was Steiner and Loschbach. Okay, they published three cases of fatal AFE uh, over 24,000 deliveries at the New Chicago Line in Hospital. And they're like, hey, uh, there's some kind of reaction here. It could be a true physical occlusion of the pulmonary vasculature, like a, like a true embolus. And now, of course, we've come to know that while that is possible, it does not have to be a physical block. It, it is actually more of an anaphylactoid syndrome. Hence, why some are getting away from amniotic fluid emboli, because emboli means some kind of physical thing blocking a vessel. And the truth is, yes, again, that, that can be, but it's, that's part of it. The, the bigger problem is the cascade of inflammatory reaction, the surge type of picture that happens afterwards. We're going to talk about that. But in that line, because it is a whole body inflammatory override, it's a cardiovascular collapse, this is why something that can block these triggers like atropine, ondansetron, yeah, that's Zofran, not for the nausea part, Zofran actually has other activity we're going to talk about, uh, and as an NSAID blocker, uh, we're going we're, we're to get into why this makes sense and why there's some data and why physiologically it's evidence-based, but it's not always evidence-based in the data because we don't have any trials. Okay, And so you see the difference here? Is this rooted in science? Does the AOK by itself or AOKT protocol, does that make sense physiologically to fix this? Absolutely. That's rooted in evidence. But here's the catch. Where's the level one trials? Uh, none. Where's a large cohort series? Uh, zero. Do you see the problem here? So there's a disconnect. Now, why aren't there any? Because could you imagine this scenario? Oh, my gosh. Um, Nurse Sally, uh, patient in room three, looks like she's having acute cardiovascular collapse. I think it's an AFE. Let's randomize her. Let's get her signature and see if she wants to do the traditional protocol uh, or traditional protocol plus the AOK. I mean, do you see? I mean, no one's going to do that. This is an acute issue. And while there's certain risk factors that you can try to identify patients, they're horribly nonspecific because the risk factors are like, Labor. <laughs> I mean, labor, grand multiparity, polyhydramnios, that's a big one. Uh, uterine rupture, obviously, abruption, C-section. Polyhydramnios has been uh, linked as a risk factor. Do you see how broad they are? Well, dang, everyone's going to have a risk factor because they're so broad and nonspecific. In some reports, even cervical lacerations uh, have been linked to amniotic fluid emboli. Uh, anywhere where there's a potential break with, with amnion slash amniotic fluid and large maternal vasculature. 
all right? Uh, and some don't have any risk factors at all. I mean, like, hey, she was just laboring. I mean, she was on Pitocin, and you know, maybe she had some hypertonus or hypotonus. The problem is you don't know if that's causative or a response to the condition. You see that. So to go, ah, we're going to risk stratify on admission for postpartum hemorrhage. Yep, that's legit. We can do that. Ah, we're going to risk stratify on admission for shoulder dystocia. Great. You can do that, even though most shoulder dystocias happen without risk, but you can definitely risk stratify. Uh, we're going to risk stratify for AFE. Nope. That's a hard stop because most people would qualify for that because they're getting induction, um, they have multigravitas, or you see that they all have one or more or some form of risk factor. So risk stratification isn't great. Um, what, what, what am I getting into? Where was I with this? <laughs> anyway, we always have to be on the alert. So any patient uh, that is going through weird uh, altered mental status acutely, guys. That's one of the flags here. So she's laboring, and all of a sudden she starts getting whack and and, and, and goofy, and it isn't because of a narcotic, uh, either administered um, by labor and delivery personnel or exogenous, recreational. Uh, if it's not because of a medication issue, or and she's not in DKA and hallucinating or whatever, and, and she's all. Uh, suddenly becomes altered, think, wow, hypoxic, put a pulse ox on her, what's going on, be on the alert, because altered mental status in some cases alone uh, is a presenting symptom of AFE. Now, unfortunately, that's at one end. On the other end, the first presentation is like maternal collapse uh, and uh, and cardiac arrest. So do you see how, and they're all bad, right? Which one's worse? Altered mental status, that's not good because it's like really bad. That impending symptom of doom or just maternal collapse. I mean, it happens fast. My point is, that's why there's no RCT for this. Uh, and, and there's very few, there's no large database cohort series because this is rare. Let's call it what it is. Thankfully, we're not going to see this. Someone may practice obstetrics and never see it. Or here's a catch, may have seen it, not recognized it. See that that's the problem. That's why it wasn't until 2016 that Stephen Clark developed this criteria based on all of the evidence since first described back in the 1920s. All right. Now, first of all, Stephen Clark, Dr. Clark, fantastic. I mean, just another yet hero and pioneer in MFM. Uh, as you all know, I'm a grown man. I'm perfectly okay in my manhood. But I'm telling you, man, I'm totally okay to have a Broish crush on in, on a peer who I think is a big leader. I mean, I've told you that I've, I admire Kevin Lavino, Dr. Cunningham, um, uh, Alan Tita, Baha Sabah. I mean, all, uh, Sabai, all of these guys who I just I just look up to as a grown man. I'm like, man, those, those are leaders, um, and, and I respect them. And same thing with Stephen Clark. So I'm thankful that in 2016, 2016 guys, that's your really just get your attention like wait do we not know that before oh no we knew about it we just didn't have a set criteria which was one of the problems because uh those this may have been happening but people weren't putting that together all right so so let's stop here for a minute take a breath because i think i've gone like all over the place with this already uh let that settle in that we've known this since the 1920s 1940s and some more info came in but it wasn't until 2016 october 2016, as a matter of fact, uh, in the Gray Journal, uh, that Clark et al. did this proposed criteria for AFE. Now, to be honest, this was kind of a a 
research model. It wasn't really wasn't meant to be clinically adopted because it was just kind of for research purposes and for documentation reporting. But of course, people were going to use this clinically because now it gives us something objective. That was one of the problems before this came out, is that there was no set definition or diagnostic criteria. Even this 2016 publication's title says this was meant to be used in research studies. Quote, this is a proposed diagnostic criteria for the case definition of amniotic fluid embolism in research studies, end quote. But of course, yep, we're going to use this clinically, as we just mentioned, because now it gives us something objective to hang our hat on and go, wow, this was catastrophic. And now we think we know what happened clinically. This is a clinical diagnosis, although laboratory criteria is part of clinical diagnosis can support that. Uh, especially when we talk about coagulopathy. All right, so let's take a break there. We're going to come back and get into this 2016 case definition and give the four criteria. All four of these have to be present, and that includes the clinical triad, typical presentation of this plus one more, all right? The typical triad plus one more. And those are the four things for an AFE consideration as a diagnostic criteria. Let's get into that next. It was really crazy to me just because I didn't know that this even existed. During labor, amniotic fluid got into Leanna's bloodstream. She had a seizure, prompting doctors at Regents Hospital to perform an emergency C-section in three minutes. While they delivered a healthy baby girl named Lydia, Leanna went into cardiac arrest. That was a news clip from WCCO and CBS News Minnesota, and this patient survived. The subheading here is, quote, a Maplewood woman is learning to be a new mom, all while she relearns simple tasks, end quote. So this is a win. Now, you're like, oh, that's terrible. How could you say it's a win? I mean, she's got simple deficits because she's alive and she has simple deficits. I mean, this was quick acting. Within three minutes, they realize she's gone down, likely AFE, and we're going to get that kid out. That's the right thing to do. So even though we've skipped a lot, I just just had to intervene here. I mean, what a wonderful success story of a horrifying condition. See all those qualifiers in there? She survived, and and she's got her wits about her. Uh, and, And so while these simple tasks do need to be relearned, this is a win. Yes, if the mother goes through CPR, if there is no ROSC, return of systemic circulation, within three minutes, that's when you cut. Maximum four to try to get the child out by five. I know, I know there's been successes with longer um, resuscitative hysterotomies because we no longer call them perimortem because that kind of assigns the patient to death. No, no, it's not perimortem. The term is not perimortem C-section. It is resuscitative C-section or hysterotomy because this helps maternal resuscitation. So you got three minutes, push it to four before you cut and try to get that child out by five. Now, even though this didn't happen in Texas, I can tell you that I did have a resident uh, who was a, one of our old medical students sent me a text. Of course, no patient names. It's all confidential. But just to share the, the impact is, hey, Dr. Chapa, we just had an AFE. We did the AOK protocol. And and she survived. And, and neurologically, she looks okay. That's a win. So I'm like, man, you need to celebrate that with your team and also get counseling. Because this is terrifying. This gives you PTSD as well as the family. Man, I mean, I just, my thing is, guys, you just have to have that empathy. So 
uh, and I know this is a little overkill and it's a little just dark, but every time we admit somebody, I'm like, hey, I'm happy for them. We're here. Look, labor and delivery is scary for you as the patient. It's scary for the partner. It's scary for us. I mean, it's a time of great joy and a lot of well-controlled and harnessed and anxiety because we don't know moment by moment what is lurking around that corner. I mean, it's a great horror story. Right. I mean, that could be Stephen King couldn't write a story like the course of labor because you have no idea. And then boom, there's a pop scare. You're like, oh, my God, that was a huge D cell. Boom. There's another drop scare. Uh, oh, you know, thought she had a cord prolapse there for a minute, but she didn't. Labor and delivery is a little stressful. So if, that's why I, if you are uh, high intensity, you like on the go and, and you know, uh, zero to 60 like I do. Uh, that's my vibe. That's my personality. That's your home. If that wigs you out reconsider maternal care <laughs> because nothing is routine. I remember hearing that as a resident when we talked about risk ratification and things were coming out as before there were true bundles, right? Just ways to prevent injury on, on admission. And Dr. Lavino said, uh, we're trying to stratify who's high risk and who's really low risk because we had a low risk wing and then we had, which was manned mainly by certified nurse midwives. And then the high risk, which is the residents and, and MFM faculty traditionally. Uh, and, and Lavino's point is, hey, every patient that walks in this labor and delivery unit is high risk until that baby's out and she has stopped bleeding in 24 hours. Isn't that crazy? Like, ah, that's a little extreme. No, but it, I get that possibly. But it makes the point that we have no idea what's going to happen moment by moment. So, yes, there's higher risk stratification, like three previous, previous C-sections and a previa. That's a no-brainer. Or, again, there's higher risks, like, hey, I'm in my fifth delivery and I've had four previous shoulder dystocias. I mean, you're like, okay, uh, that's called uh, sadistic or whatever, uh, masochistic. Is it, which one is it? Sadistic likes to give pain. Masochistic likes to receive pain, whichever. The point is, yes, you can risk stratify above a certain level. But Levino's point is, who's really low risk? I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, yes, I get you're 20, you're healthy, you're not B, your BMI isn't terrible. But if you let your guard down, guys, here's a trick. If you let your guard down... That's where things can get missed. So his point is, hey, you need to stay on the alert. You're the soldier on the camp and your eyes better not fall asleep on that watch because things can happen. I know it's a little overkill, but you get the analogy. I have completely lost what I was talking about. Oh, oh right, right, right. We're going to get into, into Clark's 2016 criteria. Okay, let's get back on the road. This 2016 publication that came out in the Gray Journal Absolutely, obviously was not the first. I mean, there's been reports of this in the literature for a while. But the, the one of the nicest reviews goes back to 2009, also in the Gray Journal under the, the heading reviews, which is amniotic fluid embolism, an evidence-based review. And basically, it starts off without going into too much into detail because I want to focus on AOK, AOKT, is be on the alert. This can happen to anyone. Thankfully, it's very rare and it doesn't happen more like uh, more frequently than it does. Uh, but things like sudden hypoxia, sudden uh, cardiovascular collapse, evidence of DIC, you got to move quickly. And at the moment of CPR, she goes on the clock. 
And remember that once that clock starts, that CPR needs to be adequate, and that's called high quality. Those compressions need to be at least two inches uh, in depth, allowing for a proper chest recoil, about a hundred compressions per minute. So you got it. You got. They got to keep pace, man. They got to keep moving, and all while the uh, uterus is displaced to the left, either manually, call manual uh, left uterine displacement, or putting the patient, of course, on a wedge. Well, I've already started getting into management here, assuming that she's in cardiovascular collapse. But let me back up for a minute. Let me back up for a minute and give us our classic triad presentation, which is part of the four-item diagnostic criteria by Clark. All right, so the three things that happen here is quick onset of hypoxia, quick onset of cardiovascular collapse, meaning hypotension and or cardiac arrest, uh, and then three is DIC. And the chance of the patient going into DIC, coagulopathy, is based on who you read, oh, anywhere from 80 to 83%. So that's why they're like, hey, you get on, you call the blood bank right away. Don't wait for labs. Let me see what her PT and her PTT is. No, no, no. If she collapses, I need, call blood, blood bank right now. I need massive transfusion protocol because either if she's bleeding or if she's AFE, that widespread DIC is going to need massive blood replacement uh, and coagulation factors. So pick up the phone real quick. You call anesthesia, call critical care, you call neonatology, and you call blood bank if the patient goes down, all right? Of course, you secure airway, and then you keep going as we do management here in just a minute. But that triad is quick onset, hypertension, cardiovascular collapse, and then three is that DIC. That's the triad. That and so that's basically the criteria. The fourth one is easy, which is and, and she's not febrile. Now the the reason is is that fever is not part of this syndrome, okay? And if they do have fever, it's not like they can't have metritis and and have an AFE. You can. It just gets super confusing because if they have fever, you have to consider is this a potential septic shock issue. And so AFE and Sears reaction, because they're both anaphylactoid, look very similar. You see that? That's why it's tricky in the presence of fever, because fever in and of itself is not, let me say it again, fever is not a criteria for the amniotic fluid emboli syndrome. So if they do have fever, while you can still consider AFE being on top of that, you always have to make sure that we're not missing something else like potential septic shock. And of course, septic shock typically doesn't happen with acute onset. It's a slow deterioration as a spiral downward. All right, remember, this is quick. So that's the difference here. So just to be clear, according to Clark et al., from the Gray Journal, um, the, the four things are, number one, sudden onset of cardiorespiratory arrest or both hypotension and respiratory compromise, uh, because women with AFE will classically experience almost simultaneous hemodynamic collapse and respiratory compromise. So there you go. The next one is this DIC-like picture. And even though there's ways to stratify for that, you can get labs and you can look at platelet scores and DIC scoring systems. Just consider that. Don't wait for the labs, but consider that DIC is probably next. So get on top of that with preemptive ordering of blood products. 
Remember that DIC typically entails a low fibrinogen level, typically lower than 100, but anything less than 200 is considered abnormal. Uh, low platelets, of course, is a factor. Uh, lactate can obviously go up both as red blood cells lies and as tissue hypoxia increases because they have uh, lactic acidosis. And then uh, and the last thing is, is that absence of fever. Okay, so absence of fever is a big deal. All right, everyone, just to be clear, in Clark's criteria, they group two of the three, two of the, of the triads together, right? Respiratory uh, depression or quick onset hypoxia and cardiovascular collapse. They all use that as one point. The next thing is DIC. So that's the third marker of the triad. They next put in a timing as their third issue. So number one is respiratory and cardiovascular compromise. The second is DIC, like picture. The third issue is timing that should occur either during labor or within 30 minutes of giving birth. So here's what these stats look like. 70% happen intrapartum. See, now you think, oh, it's postpartum. It's a postpartum issue because, right, placenta and some of the amniotic fluid is now trailing and the baby's out. Uterus is going through contraction. So you can get, uh, you know, kind of uh, a suction, uh, kind of aspiration of amniotic fluid. And no, 70% are intrapartum. 11% 11% happen after vaginal birth, and then 19% happen during cesarean delivery. So what's your biggest catch? Well, it's about two out of three, or slightly more than two out of three, 70%, well, three out of four. Uh, so between two out of three and three out of four, well, 70% happen intrapartum, 11% after vaginal delivery, and then 19% during cesarean section. So th- just to be clear, the four points are, number one, cardiovascular and respiratory compromise. Two, DIC. Three, is timing either intrapartum or specifically, even though it can happen within the first two days, super rare to happen after uh, the first 24 hours because almost universally they happen within 30 minutes of delivery of the placenta. All right. So if it happens like two days later, mm, there's no amniotic fluid in there. I mean, this, this is not like a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. This happens immediately. Uh, people have attributed possibly, oh, I think this is AFE two days later. No, that's a, probably a PE. So you got to look for other things after that. OK, so just to be clear. Uh, oh, and then the fourth thing is absence of fever. I feel like I need to restate that. That's a lot of info. Three, the clinical triad is hypotension with respiratory compromise with DIC. The next one is really an absence of, it's a negative finding, absence of fever. And then the last one is a timing issue. It happens intrapartum or within 30 minutes of delivery. If it happens outside of that, think something else, uh, either a stroke, think peripartum cardiomyopathy, uh, MI, or, or pulmonary embolus, all right, thrombus event. So that's your four from uh, Clark. Everybody good? Because I think I've killed that to death. So remember, this was in 2016 out of the Gray Journal. It was actually October 2016 out of the Gray Journal, uh, even though before that in 2009 was the description of the proposed anaphylactoid response to this in the review, also in the Gray Journal, by authors that we've already addressed in prior podcasts many times because these two are, again, rock stars, uh, Agustin Conde Agudelo and Roberto Romero. I mean, just pioneers, as dinosaurs, and I mean that in a nice way, in, uh, in obstetrics. Uh, that was back in 2009.
All right, everyone. So when this happens, remember, it's sudden. There's two actual phases. The first has to do with right ventricular failure, and that has to do because of the that originates because of the the intense pulmonary vasculature vasoconstriction. So basically, it's a form of acute spiking of pulmonary hypertension that puts strain on the right ventricle. So you get right ventricular quick dysfunction. Some have advocating uh, in a stat, if you could somehow find somebody, and typically it's anesthesia, if they're certified for it, they can take a look at, with a quick uh, transthoracic echo and look at the at the right ventricle. The problem is, is that a massive PE can also present with right ventricular dysfunction. So while that is helpful, it is sensitive, may not be specific because a large PE can also do that. But what happens, think about it. So first you get vasoconstriction uh, in, the, in the pulmonary vasculature that freaks out the, the right uh, ventricle. Well, then you, because of increasing hypoxia and increased inflammatory response, now you get uh, myocardial ischemia to the left. Uh, plus all those inflammatory markers are, are cardiotoxic. So now you get left ventricular dysfunction going to, uh, uh, into left uh, systemic failure. All right. So the first acute phase is right ventricular failure followed by left ventricular failure. And of course, remember that 80 to 83 percent by this time are now getting uh, coagulopathy. This is fast. So let's address management, traditional management. And then we're going to talk about AOK or AOKT on top of that. So let me be very clear. It's not like a patient goes down and you say, ah, I'm going to give her atropine on Dancitron and Keterolac uh, and she's good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This can be helpful based on some case reports. It gave quick return. It's kind of stop the bricks quickly if you administer it fast. That's the cause you're trying to block the trains from leaving uh, the terminal. Okay, you, you got once they're out, they're out. Okay, and it can still be helpful, but you want as soon as you recognize it, I need AOT now and start compressions and everything else. AOK or AOKT does not uh, take place. Uh, the, the, take the place of regular management. Like, as soon as a patient goes down, you start immediate high-quality CPR through ACLS paradigm. Okay, so that's happening. Then the, the, the next thing to do is like, hey, I need a stat C-section kit right away because if we don't have ROSC within, uh, you know, three to four minutes, this baby is out. Put the baby on the, put the patient on a tilt and consider the, and continue doing CPR. Next, you've got to remember that this is a right ventricular failure quick. So if you can get quickly, I mean, within minutes, that's highly unlikely. But if you can do quickly a bedside transthoracic echo, that's helpful. But do not wait for that. Meanwhile, while you're doing that, you want to avoid excessive fluid recess because it can get pulmonary hypertension. Remember, it is a right ventricular failure. But at this time, you're maintaining blood pressure support with norepi. Uh, you're giving inotropes. You can give dobutamine, milnarone. You're trying to make that right ventricle work, uh, and you're trying to decrease pulmonary afterload. Here is where sildenafil that you can give IV. You can do inhaled nitric oxide, uh, or you can also give uh, IV prostacycline. You need to open up those pulmonary vessels because this happens fast. Very quickly, you'll kick into second phase which is now left ventricular failure. And so at this time, you're still maintaining a fluid support. You're giving norepi. You're continuing dobutamine, milnarone. You're, you're, you're continuing to do this. And at the same time, now you're calling blood bank and you're watching for DIC coagulopathy. So while you're doing that, 
within minutes, ideally within the first three minutes or so, you want to get the AOK protocol, either AOK by itself, but now it's been expanded to include transacemic acid to try to block that cascade for coagulopathy. So now, now that we've settled that, that AOK is, doesn't live in isolation, this is the icing on top of the cake. The cake is the first response. Uh, and then the inner core of the cake is the problem, right? So you've got you've got the filling, which is the AFE. Then you make the cake around it, which is your first response, including ACLS and circulatory support. And then you frost that with AOK or AOKT. As you're hearing this, your thought should be, oh my gosh, I hope I never see this and I'm with you. I mean, my goodness. Look, I've seen eclampsia. It's terrifying. I've had my share of postpartum hemorrhage with resulting in perinatal death uh, there's I've, I've had shoulder dystocia i've had the cord prolapse oh my goodness i've had the uterine rupture i mean it's just out there guys and i haven't been practicing like 50 years i mean i've been out 20 uh, now just cleared 23 years now i know that seems like a lot for some but it really isn't it's not to me um because i feel like i'm still learning stuff um and so I'm like, oh my god, is it is it like my the little jack in the box, you know, that I'm I'm just turning the handle, turning the handle, and then waiting for this thing to pop up. This is why it's super important to just always be on the alert. And if a patient goes down, um, and you know it's not actively a bleeding issue, uh, then think AFE and get on top of that situation fast. Now we're going to get into the AOK protocol, which really isn't a protocol at all. It's just, hey, give these three medications or four if you throw in now the T, which is transacamic acid, which, which is totally valid in this situation. But the first report of this, it didn't come out until 2013. Uh yeah, guys, this is all recent. Remember, 2016 was the official diagnostic criteria for research reporting. And so this was three years before that. But you think, oh, we'd known this for a long time. No, man, 2013. That was by Cooper et al., who actually presented the use of these medications. And they actually threw in um, uh, Reglan as well, metoclopramide. But but that kind of is less important in the bigger scheme of it than atropine, ondansetron, and ketororlac. Uh, and this was presented at SOAP, the Society of Obstetrical Anesthesia Providers, at their meeting in 2013 when it was held in San Juan, Puerto Rico. See, if, if, if you just reason this out and like these authors did when they presented this, so like, look, uh, we had a patient go down uh, and it was terrible and we knew that this was... Uh, a systemic anaphylactoid type of response. So to head this thing off the pass, you know, we chose atropine, ondansetron, ketorolac, because it makes biological sense. That's rooted in evidence. We know what causes this, so let's get ahead of it. Now, so let me be very clear. The evidence clinically that this works is based on case reports. Why? Because this thing is super rare. Again, there's no large cohort series. I hope we don't ever get one because that means that it's happening more frequently. So these are all by reports that have been used. And as I mentioned, my old medical student, my resident buddy in uh, in, in another city um, said, hey, we use the AOK protocol and, and it does seem to revert in all the cases where they've used it. And it's been a handful. Um, this seems to return ROSC quickly. 
All right, so let's do A-OK first. And let me tell you the science of why this, this should work and clinically why it has. Now, the reason that you can say de facto, absolutely, synchronon, without a doubt, that this is working is because you're doing so many other interventions in there, right? So you're doing the atropine, dobutamine. I mean, you're giving a lot of recess. So there's all these other medications. But here's why A-OK and A-OK-T are valid and why I'm a fan of it. For something that has a stated mortality rate, based on who you read, anywhere from 40% to 60%. At some point, it was like 80%. Um, but we've gotten better to recognize this quickly. If, it ha- if something has a mortality that high, um, why would we not do anything to try to reduce that? So that's where I come in. We're like, well, where's the large data? Where's the RCTs? One, we're never going to do that. Uh, two large cohort studies, super rare. These are unpredictable, so very hard to figure out. And three, we've got to do it with a mortality rate of 50-ish. Uh, that's hovers either at 40, a little bit below, or, or higher up to 70 based on who you read. You're darn right I'm going to do as much as I can to reduce that. Okay? So we've got to do something. Remember our, our mantra here. Can it help? Absolutely. This makes physiological sense. Can it hurt? Well, no, because if you don't do anything, it's, death is around the corner. I mean, we've got to do something to rescue here. And this seems to have some benefit based on the limited case reports that are out there. Remember, of course, this is all done in addition to the compressions. Um, and with a change out of, of compression providers, you're supposed to change out every two minutes because you, you get fatigued at, at a rate of 100 compressions for two minutes. Forget about it. I mean, if you're doing it right, uh, you, you, you're going to get fatigued. So if somebody's ever doing it, they've been doing the compressions for like five minutes, they're like, no, I'm good. Brother, if you're not fatigued, you're doing it wrong. So switch out doing high uh, quality compressions every two minutes. And remember, if there's no uh, return of ROSC, then plan that C-section at three to that peri, uh, I was going to say perimortem, no, that resuscitative hysterotomy within three, maximum four minutes to get the kid out as soon as possible. But here's why the AOK protocol seems to make sense atropine at one milligram. The, the idea here is that you're trying to reverse, get on top of it, uh, a, a, of a parasympathetic blockade. And the reason is, is that this, the, the parasympathetic activity can contribute to that pulmonary vasospasm. So if you give something that's going to block that, you're helping increase oxygenation. All right, so atropine at one milligram has to do with the parasympathetic blocking effect to hit pulmonary vasculature. Right now, I get it. Where show me the MRI data that shows that? Show me the angiogram. Forget it. It's it's not there. But again, does this make physiological sense? Absolutely. Uh, can it hurt? I uh, n- not that I'm aware of. Now on Dancitron, as we go to the O in the AOK on Dancitron at eight milligrams, because you're like, well, why, why would an anti-nausea thing work? Because remember that it's got serotonogic type re- activity. It blocks serotonin receptors. And that, together with their location on the vagal terminals on the heart and the lung, can can help with this response to that pulmonary vasoconstriction uh, and help the heart have better uh, dynamic flow. Crazy or what? So, on Dancitron has to do with its ability to block the serotonin receptors uh, that would otherwise uh, improve, at least in theory, the cardiac functioning to increase contractility. Now, remember, this does not take place of the usual inotropes. You're still giving dobutamine. You're still giving epi. You're giving the usual medications. This is on top of that. 
And then the ketororlac at 30 milligrams is to help block thromboxane, which is that that uh, the, the big switch for platelet activation because this inflammatory cascade isn't just uh, pro-inflammatory markers. It has to do with angry platelet uh, release chemicals. So ketororlac is a way to try to get on top of that. Now, traditionally, it was 30 milligrams. I guess you could use 60, but traditionally, it was just 30 milligrams. So one milligram of atropine uh, on Danzatron, eight milligrams, and then ketororlac, 30 milligrams. That's the AOK. Now, some, again, have just recently started introducing uh, um, transacamic acid at the usual one gram uh, over, you know, three or five minutes or so to help with a coagulopathy effect. So, and there's two rebuttals here. Okay, there's two camps here. One camp is, uh, there's just not enough data that that works. Well, I'm not sure why we're using that. And that's right. They're not, they're absolute. they have a valid point. However, the rebuttal is, um, what we've been doing is not very good. <laughs> I mean, there's success stories, like the new story that we played, but man, uh, what can it hurt? And at the end of the recess, if you, if the patient does not have a good outcome, can we say we did everything that we could? Because this is a timed issue. AOK seems to work within the first minutes. So here's how this plays out. Hey, I'm in labor. Oh my God, what's going on? Hey, the patient's getting goofy. Oh, is she bleeding? No. Oh my, oh my gosh, she tanked her pressure. Uh, she's becoming, oh my gosh, her O2 sat's going. Quick, press the red button. AFE, AFE, overcall it if you have to. Okay. Now, when I say that, I, I don't want to take any heat for it because one of the journals actually in that 2016 Clark paper, uh, it said, hey, while we're going to propose this, let's be clear that not every death and not every patient that goes down in labor and delivery is an AFE. Okay. Can we be very clear here? Strokes happen. That's why you have to have clinical context. MIs happen. That's why you have to have clinical context. Big saddle emboli from a thrombus happen. Again, clinical context. Uh, and I love Clark's uh, work because he actually quoted uh, Eastman from 1948. And his quote was basically some to the effect of, well, now that we know that this thing is out there, let's not make it a trash can diagnosis for every death that happens peripartum. Okay, let's find, let's find that original quote. So I'm going to read you that quote here in just a minute. Hold on. Here it is. Okay. I, 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 here it is. So in the in 2016, uh, October 2016, Clark says uh, the quote is by N.J. Eastman, 1948. Quote, let us be careful not to make it, the diagnosis of amniotic fluid embolism, a wastebasket for all cases of unexplained death and labor. End quote. Well, there you go. But so so there's a, a place to overcall it correctly. Don't call an AFE. Don't call an eclamptic seizure an AFE, for heaven's sakes. I mean, if she's got 160 over 110, you haven't started mag and she seizes, uh, that's eclampsia. So put it into context. Remember our triad. Remember the four points. Uh, the four points are quick onset hypoxia with respiratory compromise, uh, DIC. Uh, it happens uh, in a afebrile state and intrapartum or within 30 minutes of delivery. Those are the four markers. Okay, clinical diagnosis. Then And then work fast. Call blood bank. Call your ancillary services. Give me AOKT right now, and you want to get that in within ideally the first three minutes. Yeah, this AOK or AOKT thing is pretty popular. Uh, it's had it's made its way in some um, in some case reports for those who met the criteria for um, 
for AFE and it's gone in a lot of conferences. I know AOAN has talked about it. Um, several CRNA societies have, have got that in, in their education material as well. And why, why would we rush to this without a, a big burden of evidence, of, of quality data that it works? Very easy. Three reasons. It can't hurt. Number two, it can only help. Three, damn, most labor and deliveries have these medicines available. So is there robust data clinically? No. Is there robust data physiologically? Sure. Do you all get that? See that, that little disconnect there? And so if you ask, if your question is, am I a fan of this thing? 100%. I'm also a fan of recognizing it early and doing the traditional ACLS SMFM response, which is just like any other patient who wasn't pregnant who's having core pulmonal or systemic uh, collapse from an anaphylactoid reaction. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this up. There you go. A-OK or A-OKT? Yes. As an extra layer of supplemental care, as an adjuvant for patients who are facing this rare but very potentially lethal condition, I am a big fan of this. All right, podcast family, we hope you found this helpful. Let me know what you, what you think. If your uh, hospitals are doing AOK bundles, super important to discuss with your unit. Have a simulation for this. Remember, we talked about a lot more of the pathophysiology back in 2019, and I really wanted to focus on this adjuvant care on top of active recess. All right, everyone, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.